trapped within the cold, dark temple, with the waters rising and death looming before her, the sorcerer Voss only has the bizarre, sentient, gelatinous cube, Globagool, to keep her company. Her companions are out in the world trying to find another solution to her dilemma. They're trying to find a sacrificial lamb, someone that can be killed in the chamber in order to set her free. She doesn't want them to do that. And with the time she has, she's contemplating her choices. With only a few feet of air left in the chamber, they arrive. He's some drunken vagrant that they've conned into coming here. They've dragged him down under the water and up into this chamber. He's confused, he's angry, he's frightened. Time's running out, and the decision around her own fate is being taken from her. And so, she decides to do the only thing that she can think of. She makes herself the sacrifice. She may not leave this chamber alive, but she chooses to leave the chamber with her integrity intact. This, however, is not the end of her story. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. The central focus of our last session was the moral choice facing Voss and the other players. Do you find someone to kill, or do you let one of your own, or yourself, die? It's a tough dilemma, because the mercenary nature of three of our five characters leads them unequivocally to the choice that someone else has to be sacrificed. They don't even doubt that, not for a second. They are trying to find someone who deserves to die, but that proves difficult. They leave the cave system, and Voss actually instructs them to try to find someone who can potentially use magic to break the seal. They know that that is fruitless, and they don't much bother with it. Instead, they head back to the town of Deadfall, only a short ways away, leaving Voss behind in the chamber. The only thing she has remaining with her is the gelatinous cube Globagol. This is a very new life form. He's naive. He doesn't really understand uh, mammalian life. He doesn't understand that the rising waters means death. So she doesn't have much solace in this one creature, and she's trying to figure out how can she possibly deal with this situation. Ahead of time, Taylor, the person playing Voss, and I had worked out some options, things that could play out in the session to help give it some form. And Taylor was aware that if her character were to die, like any other time in the campaign, when a character dies for the first time, that they go and face the gates of death and what can be found there. And we talked about what that would mean for an Asimir and what that would mean for a person in her position with the with the metaphysical and spiritual connections that she has. I guess that's kind of a controversial thing, right? To to take a a player off the uh, the deck and say, okay, let's stop playing the game for a moment as you know, player and dungeon master, and let's honestly metagame here, right? We're we're gonna work as storytellers trying to craft what will happen. And so we had worked out ahead of time certain options. Now, we only went so far with this. I, of course, wasn't promising anything. I wasn't trying to give her 
deep inside information, but did speak of it as a potentially transformative experience. On its own, the fact that if she were to die in the chamber that she'd go to the gates of death, I think, was an important distinction in what could happen there, and also spoke about what that could mean for the character moving forward. Which leads us back to this moment in the game session. The other four players go forth to Deadfall. They start poking around trying to find any criminals who are awaiting execution, and it's just not that type of town. There, There's nobody that is actually incarcerated at all at the moment. It tends to be pretty harsh if someone actually necessitated execution. That happens on the spot. There's really not much of a judge and trial system here. That being said, they ultimately end up selecting this nasty drunkard who who's not even able enough to get up and go and work in the mines. They're able to con him into going back with them. Constantine comes up with a smart play to actually not kidnap this character, but lie to them and bribe them, say that there's a job, and gets them to come willingly under their own power. And I'd have to say this is a decidedly evil act. I can't color this any other way. The moral dilemma that's in front of all these characters, not just Voss, who's got to decide, do I allow someone to be killed on my behalf? But the rest of the players are taking proactive action to go find someone to be the sacrificial lamb, and they're forced to land not on someone who is this evil, murdering asshat, but someone who's honestly just a nasty drunk, who probably has done bad things, you imagine. He must have. There's no guarantee. There's no absolutes here. I'm not sure how I feel about this from a gaming standpoint. I'm not talking about making judgments on what the characters are doing. I'm into uh, shades of gray moral fiction as much as anybody else is. If you loved Breaking Bad, then you enjoy this area where you're pushing the limits of, of what is a good character, what is a bad character, and questioning if, if good and evil are necessarily absolutes. Spoiler alert, they aren't. But the characters that they've all designed have this very survivalist, mercenary outlook. And it makes sense that they would decide, we're not going to let our friend, our asset, right? Even if you were to say you take the emotion out of it. They have a sorcerer. She's a powerful character. She's capable of doing things that almost nobody else is. Of course, they're not going to let her die. They have to find some way to protect their interests. Or it could be as simple as, well, this is this is a compatriot. I, I'm, I'm going to have their back in any circumstance. I think there was lots of thinking around, well, we, we kill people and things all the time. How is this really any different? It's a debatable point, I suppose, but I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of this is very different. I don't get hung up on alignment in my campaign or in my dungeon mastering style. I don't see this as murder hobo activity. It's the opposite of that. This is story and character driven. For my money, this is all good stuff. And it was interesting to see as they didn't really struggle with this decision at all. They were more struggling with the details of and the logistics of how to get it done. The only person who really struggled with this is Taylor playing Voss. And her struggle really led her to self-destruction, self-sacrifice. I hesitate to call it suicide. Suicide is something, again, I'm not speaking of the realities of, of that horrible thing in the real world. I'm talking about that decision in a game sense. Right. The choice to make yourself the sacrifice in this circumstance, to protect your soul over your physical form, is what's really happening here. 
in the moment when she's faced with this sacrificial lamb, a whole bunch of interesting things happen. She decides to use her dagger to kill herself. Mir tries to beat her to the punch and attempts to kill their vagrant before she can be killed. Jarrus is looking to support Voss's wishes, and so he tries to stop Mir. Constantine and Bren both dive through the water to try to get to Voss before the killing blow can land. In the end, Voss thrusts her dagger up underneath her throat and into her own skull. She dies instantly. Mir and Jarrus struggle for a second, but Mir is just a little bit faster and is able to brain the vagrant with his staff, so kills him too. Bren and Constantine are able to get to Voss, but of course, it's, it's all too late. And at this point, there's really not a lot of air left in this final chamber. The deed is done. But that's not at all where the session quite ends. There is an earthquake. There had been a tremor which initially had locked them into the oozing temple many, many sessions ago, but only several hours in game time. Now there's another worse tremor, which actually accelerates the amount of water that's coming in. It almost completely closes off this exit that they've found, and they have to squeeze through. They're trying to actually bring Voss's body with them, but they just can't quite manage it. And time is now rapidly running out. Mir transforms into a giant frog, who's obviously going to be a lot better in this kind of environment, and is able to find them another pathway to more air. The main body of the players finds themselves in another cavern system. While this is happening, Voss is entering the spirit realm. It's this really cool-looking, misty black area with a fallen tower, and she's standing on top of the apex of this, this ruin, and she can hear voices in the dark, essentially bidding on her soul. And unlike the other encounters at the Gates of Death, she doesn't have just one soul, and it's not that small. So normally what happens is there's this small pinpoint almost of light in the distance, and that represents the soul energy of the character in question. We've done this twice before in this campaign. So on the map, the player would there would be a square, essentially, that has a, a ball of light in it. And it's usually at some distance away from the player. And what they're dealing with is these shadow demons that are attempting to get to their soul and devour it. And it's their job to draw those demons off and defend their own soul from being consumed. That's the challenge. If you're able to do that, then you get to return to the land of the living. With Voss, the piece of illumination is massive. It would be like size large. But there's not just a ball of light representing her soul. There's also a ball of darkness. She's a fallen Asimir, and so she has both sides vying for her. She has the fallen angel Semyana, who represents this black ball of shadow energy. She's also a shadow sorcerer. And then there's this luminous ball of light, which kind of represents the connection she has to this god of light. What does she do, right? She's got these two facets of her soul. How do you actually engage with this? And the in the distance, the, the demonic thing that's coming to assault her is not a shadow demon, but rather a Baylor. Now, it doesn't matter what boons a character may get while acting within this spiritual realm. The rules I've concocted give them a lot more opportunity, limitless spell slots, double the normal hit points, 
a lot more actions on their turn than is normal. None of that matters. When you're fourth level, the ability to battle a Baylor is non-existent. But there's another entity here, and it's essentially the Morrigan who comes to her and offers her a third choice. This is sort of the pivot point, I think, of the early campaign, where I've now introduced this neutral deity. In my mind, the Morrigan's neutral, not chaotic evil, the way she's mentioned in the player's handbook. She wants a champion, and she wants it to be Voss. She saw what Voss did in the chamber. She saw that she was willing to sacrifice herself, and she questions her here as to why. She wants to know if it was because of weakness, or if it was because of commitment to a deeper agenda. She points out to Voss that there is something else in this realm, that the source of her mystic power, the sorcery, is not what it appears to be. Voss had mistakenly presumed that Semyana was the one giving her her shadow powers, and the Morrigan alleviates that misconception and explains that all sorcery comes from dragons. Not just draconic sorcery, but any sorcery. That magic is personified in dragons. And so in the dark, in this realm, there's a dragon. There's more than one dragon. And Voss can tap into them. She says that her power, Voss's power, comes from the earth itself. And she should not be lured away by either the Lord of Light or the Lord of Darkness. That she should choose a different path, one that's more aligned with the Morrigan. Armed with this information, Voss journeys into a section of the map as this Baylor is, is slowly approaching. And she finds a chained dragon. It's a silver dragon. And she engages with it in dialogue, trying to determine if it is friend or foe. And in the end, she chooses to set it free. And as a result, it offers itself as mount. And we end the session with Voss climbing atop the silver dragon's back, summoning, essentially, a number of other dragons who rise up from the dark floor. And so what we're going to have right at the beginning of next session is a massive battle with multiple dragons on the side of the players and being controlled by all the players versus currently what looks like a Baylor, but as they will soon discover, the Baylor is going to summon forth his hordes. And so we're going to have a big old dragon-on-demon fight. What worked, what didn't work, and lessons learned. In the beginning, we had a break where I had each of the players talk about what their character was thinking. Give us a snippet of in-person POV. What's going on in their head, kind of like a novel can do. And I would say this was a marginal success. It worked. It gave us some interesting insight into what was going on. I think it helped the other players to hear in this format what each of them is thinking in this moment. It clarified some key things. The ones that stand out for me were Mir and Constantine. In the case of Mir, it became clear he sees Voss as integral to whatever it is that's happening. He has this sense of a larger conflict that's emerging, and he believes that Voss is a linchpin to dealing with it. His motivation for saving her at any cost, at any price, even the life of an innocent, is that he believes she's important to the greater cause, whatever that may be. He may not be crystal clear on what it is, but he knows that she is important. 
In the case of Constantine, he voiced concern for what they were doing. Frustration with Voss for not seeming to be 100% on board with doing what was necessary to save her life. But mostly the thing that's revelatory is he doesn't know why they're even going after the book. I highlight this one from a Dungeon Master's standpoint, because again, we find ourselves in this campaign coming back to the core motivations that are driving the party. And it has led me to a general decision, which I'll be discussing not so much here in this podcast, but in the next one, about preparing for our next session. The fact that we keep coming back to understanding why these characters are adventuring together speaks to an underlying issue that has to be addressed in order to make everything smooth going forward. So I call this exercise a a marginal success because I think it helped the other players, not the characters, but the players, to hear what everyone was thinking. Because when you can hear someone else's point of view, I think you can begin to empathize with it. And you can adjust your actions in the story in order to uh, include everyone. And for me, it provided good intel on where everyone was at and what we need to do to bring things a little bit more onto the track. As ever, the encounters at the Gates of Death were also a general positive, and this was only the beginning of an encounter, but there was an exceedingly positive reaction to the prospect of being in a dragon and demon fight. Who wouldn't enjoy that? So the fact that we got there, there was this moment when the silver dragon sort of hunkered down and extended its legs so that Voss could climb on board. And that is one of the thing I would say if people were to say, what what's the thing in D&D that you'd like to be able to do? It's like ride a dragon in a massive aerial combat. Come on. So setting that up, and we haven't done it yet, but setting it up, I think, was a, was a huge plus um, in terms of excitement for the next episode of the game. What didn't work so well is the pacing. I don't know exactly how to correct for this in this particular case. It's important to let things play out as they will. I kind of knew this is where we were going to get. I certainly didn't drive it that way. I was sort of just watching as things developed and and knew from the beginning that this is likely where we were going to end up. And I could have short-circuited a lot of that time and move things forward, but I don't think that's my job. I think my job is to put forth the scenario and see what the players will do, right? How they chose to engage in the town, for example, who they decided to approach was different than what I was expecting. And so we had some quick role-playing encounters that were not necessarily planned for. I had to improvise them. But overall, for an entire session again to not really take us very, very far in the in the narrative is a little disappointing. But I think the solve here is more me setting my own expectations for what I can accomplish in a session correctly versus saying that there's necessarily anything that had been done wrong. Lessons learned. I think the lessons learned really came out of the monologue. Giving your players the opportunity to speak in character and espouse how they think things are going does something interesting. It lets the players give you feedback in a way and also give the other players feedback, but do it one step removed so it doesn't become potentially personal, right? You have the ability, if you do these monologues, to be able to say, look, I'm in character now, so it's not me, it's this character. 
saying, this is how I feel about this situation. And you don't always get that teed up for yourself. You don't always have a means to say, this is what I think of this situation by saying, look, I'm going to go around and everyone's going to say in character what they think about this, what they're thinking, what's going on in your mind in this moment. I told them about this in advance because I certainly didn't want to put anybody on the spot with that. I wanted to give them a chance to think it over and figure out what they wanted to say. But that, I think, gives them the opportunity to subtly give the best kind of feedback to the other people at the table, myself and everyone else who's playing. And I say the best kind because... If you've ever been involved in anything where people have to moderate conflict between parties, and I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but it just, no one can respond to your POV, right? As you're saying, this is what my character's thinking in this moment. There's no one who possibly thinks they they can interrupt and say, but wait a second, that's wrong. And you aren't in trouble for having this point of view because it's your character that has that point of view. What does this character think? This is what Voss thinks. This is what Constantine thinks. This is what Bren is thinking. And because you can do it in your character's voice, you have dramatic license to set the stage, set the agenda, and have that character's voice be heard. Now, it is, again, providing meta information to the other players at the table. But as I spoke about in an earlier podcast, I see players as storytellers as much as the player of their character. And so having that information, it empowers that role of storyteller because now they know what the motivations of some of these other characters in the drama are. And that to me was a big lesson learned. That's something I I think I'll continue to do. It's not something I'd want to do every single session, but every now and again, it's kind of cool to dip into that. And I don't even have to do it for every single character, right? If there is this dramatic moment that is lacking an immediate need for a decision or an immediate capacity to interact and therefore have their voice be heard, handing a character who's like trapped in the dark, tell me what you're thinking, what's going on in your character's mind now. I think that can be a really useful tool and it's something that I plan to revisit as the game progresses. So that was the last session, driven by this moral dilemma and choice. It elevated the game to something where I think every every player was forced to think about the nature of good and evil and determine if this was an evil act. There was a really interesting exchange in email that I had with Voss where, with Voss, I don't get to email Voss. Voss is a fictional character with Taylor talking about if certain gods are evil or not. And basically the answer was, I can tell you that they're not good and it's possible they might be evil. In the end, I have to say that what and who you are surrounded by, your followers or the the followers of the deity, really are the litmus test, aren't they? Is it really about the extra planar supernatural god entity? Or is it about the followers that surround you, the company you keep? People who do evil in the name of a good god are evil, and it really has nothing to do with that god. It really has to do with you and the choices you're making in the name of your belief system. Are you true to that belief system or not? Overall, I'd have to say, if you are willing to sacrifice someone in order to save your own life, regardless of who that someone is, this is not a good act. It may not be strictly evil, depending on the circumstances, but it isn't good. 
all of that, of course, is is a judgment, and it enriched the campaign. I think we skirted the edge of it almost getting a little too serious. We went pretty dark in terms of the choices that the characters had to make. But overall, it made for a robust, compelling, very special episode of our campaign. I have no doubt that the next session with the dragons and the demons and everything in the land of the dead, plus some of the other things that I have in store, which I'll talk about in the next prep session podcast, is going to be really exciting. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help out at all, the absolute best thing that you can do is give us a review on iTunes. At this point, just looking to elevate the profile of the audio journal and get some other folks listening in. As always, you can reach out on Twitter at Anatomy Camp, or you can go to the Podbean website. You should see the link in the description and leave us a comment. Or you can reach me directly by email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, thanks for listening.